0: Okay, so we start. Of course. I'm Josefina Yersa, the editor of Lacanian Inc. Let me thank you all for coming. A special thanks to Jack Tilton for hosting this event. And many thanks to Janine Cirinchoni for her help with putting it together. So, this is Lacanian Inc.'s 18 years of, of existence. Mm-hmm. We are launching issue 30. The general subject is objet. If we are following Jacques Miller throughout his readings of Jacques Lacan seminar from another to the other in this issue, objet is not unseizable. Objet is captured in the phantasma, and it's denuded in perversion, precisely where surplus jouir is unveiled in a naked form. In terms of structure, then, the place to find this little object is for certain the phantasma, especially to the extent that the subject is not represented in it. Operating outside any sort of awareness, the phantom image emerges when you're not expecting it and it vanishes after having produced its effect. The paradigmatic phantasma in Freud is, of course, a child is beaten. In family romances, he foresees a situation where daydreams are used by the child to avoid the atypical conflict by imagining himself to be adopted, to be really the child of a king and queen. A child is being beaten deals with the theoretical problem of how pleasure and suffering become linked. The childhood-beating fantasy is often accompanied by sexual arousal. Always a question with the other sex, since there isn't reciprocity, because the other sex as such for both is the feminine sex, for men and for women, in the sense that this is the first object when the child, when the baby, the object of desire. (coughs) Lacan pursues the concept. And this is how he comes up with his famous line "There isn't sexual relationship. Now the hysterical loans her body to another woman. If the classical masculine fantasma is to fantasize with another woman while making love, also women fantasize with another man, just that, as we mentioned here a few days ago, we can go as far as to have this other man make love to another woman. That is to say that she offers her body as the body of somebody else. And this, we saw, is a very (coughs) hidden thing. Her man, her husband, doesn't know that each night he makes love to another woman. (laughs) So there is a shame dimension to the phantasma. It often takes a while before patients talk (coughs) of their phantasmas in analysis. But they do, because once once they did it, they love it. Now, to to this patient in question that we we were talking about, in so telling it, she she had hidden it for years in previous analyses, so when she decided to just stop with using this image that was the same one and appeared every time, the result was she was having problems with having an orgasm. So this is a process which needs to I don't know, needs to read someplace for a while. Anyway, this is the hysterical pantomime that Lacan makes reference to. Now, as for the sadomasochistic pantomime, Lorenz Bataille, Lacan's stepdaughter and half-sister to Judith Lacan, who for a while was called also uh, Judith Bataille, writes a story which early enough got published in Ornicar 8. I'll tell you that story. This is like a classical phantasma. Scott is saying that when he abandons himself to what he calls his recurrent daydream, he sees himself bowing in front of this woman who happens to hold a whip in her left hand. The whip's long lashes whistling in the air. He does not resist. He doesn't know where the striking goes. (coughs) He doesn't feel pain. At this point, there's a certain number of strokes left. He will round up his back like a cat. The woman beating him, not herself anymore, is another woman placed beside her. This other one doesn't have a face. Now he's sexually aroused. This faceless woman is also aroused. The spaces between strokes, seem like eternity. So to this story she adds that here's a waste of jouissance. The pursuit of jouissance functions as the last object and suggests the idea of masochism, because of the impossibility of regaining the object. The formula of the phantasma dislays the subject relating to the object of jouissance, objet and this subject is a subject of a signifier. Divided by jouissance, it finds the object fusing, melting with it, in a surface, dividable with a cut, which is a phantasma itself. The action is the signifying cut as much as object A is representing the subject. Scott is at once the beaten man, the one beating the man, and the jouissance of the one doing this. At the same time, the subject identifies with the signifier with the act of whipping itself. The function of the object I in the phantasma takes place in the real. The subject unconsciously perceiving the object becomes it. This sort of jouissance pertains to be. The phantasma will not ameliorate the emptiness of the Subject, moreover, it will reintroduce the interval between the division. So this is the interval between the signifier, Knox, where Scott finds the desire of the other. And this interval separating the signifiers is metonymy. Through them, running, escaping is what we call desire. The desire of the other is apprehended by the subject in the lacks of the other's discourse. Object A between S and S. In Alienation, the original repression of S makes for a barred subject separation instead makes object A appear. (laughs) Now, we have of Lacanian ink. We have also that this object as standing is the same as appears in the work of art, which is the (laughs) same object R, Of course, what is different is the empty when we look into the work of art. And again, the empty gets specially different when we look for the work at the work of art of some artists. So with Simon Critchley, we have that the truth of art, according to uh, Wild is romantic aesthetics. Um, with Richard Kostelaneitz, He uh, says war is unnecessary. We are entering the Vietnam. We entered the Vietnam War. It was by mistake. So it has been the invasion of Iraq, and yes, grenade. Jean-Luc Nancy's nudity is not truth. For him, nudity is not truth. It is inquietude, anticipation. Kathy Lebovis and me, we talk of cohe. Josie Kushi's voyeur in the park, and this is not Lacan's voyeur that wants to be screamed at, caught by the police. This voyeur participates of the love scene. With Slavoj Sizek, object a could be the vampiric object that does not bring <coughs> out its image in a mirror. However, the exact opposite could also provide an image of object a. When we look at a thing directly in reality, we don't see it. Yes with you, Slavoj Cizek. <laughs>
1: okay, thank you. <laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat> okay, I, well, the usual thanks and so on. Uh, I, uh, I, I would like directly to go to the point because I hope you will not be disappointed. What I decided to do today is a very boring, systematic, talk with almost no jokes dealing, really, with the problem which is indicated in the title. So let me begin. It is easy to make fun of Fukuyama's notion of the end of history, but the majority today is Fukuyamayan, how should I put it? Liberal democratic capitalism is accepted as the finally found formula of the best possible society. All one can do is to render it more just, more tolerant, and so on and so on. So my starting point is a simple observation that this making fun of Fukuyama, oh that idiot who thought history is over, is suspicious. Practically all all the leftists, even that I know, basically accept it. Nobody questions today state, capitalism, and so on. Even the, the word is disappearing, capitalism, because it's so universal. Like I heard Again and again, this is how censorship works today. The same same anecdote from journalists here in the United States, in Germany, in Italy, how there is uh, pressure from editors, apparently purely stylistic pressures, to drop the word. For example, an Italian friend for a big left-of-center daily newspaper, uh, La Repubblica, told me how he wrote a text, totally neutral, just a report, where he used the word uh, capitalism. And the editor said, stylistically, it doesn't function. Couldn't you replace capitalism with economy or something (laughs) like that? And it's so it's incredible how works are disappearing. Let me tell you another strange anecdote. You remember, maybe some of you even saw it. I didn't. I'm too horrified of myself. Uh, That perverts guide to cinema. Now we are trying to do. Part two: Pervert Guide to Ideology. <coughs> it's incredible. Uh, there are incredible obstacles, even if we are doing with uh, with uh, uh, with people there who run Channel 4 in England, who boast of being leftists and so on and so on. And uh, with all the strings that I try to pull through, Sophie Fines, we got Rafe Fiennes, Some of big stars. Claiming just give the money, we will even appear there. No, there was a resistance. Then finally, we met and they said, "You see, this word ideology, but it's, couldn't you make it like perverts' guides to spiritual tendencies today or what? <laughs> like, it's no more longer actual. You know, words are disappearing. So again, we are Fukuyamaists. I claim even like let's take somebody like my good theoretical friend. No, sorry, theoretical enemy, practical friend, Judith Butler. I mean." <laughs> Her universe, for me, fits perfectly liberal capitalism. All, all she wants is, you know, like all the excluded voices, those on the margin who are not heard, should be, should be their words should be heard, and so on, and so on. It's just, let's expand more and more liberal democracy. Let's open up the space. Let's include the marginalized, and so on, and so on. This, for me, fits the existing order. So the only true question for me today is do we endorse this naturalization of capitalism which I don't have time to go into it here but my best friend and not theoretical enemy. Even with him I have problems. The guy who was here I think a little bit ago. But you. My (laughs) god recently he started to talk about he used a terrible metaphor. I don't know what's happening with him. Maybe <laughs> he was visiting the United States too much. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at a talk recently, he said something like, one cannot fight capitalism. Capitalism is like a murmur, a background sound, where, It's just there. You should ignore it. You fight concrete politics. You fight United States government. You fight Israel government. You fight that. You know what I mean? You don't fight capitalism as such. It's the background of fight. Well, I claim if the notion of event, the way he uses it, or I would say in more Lacanian vein, act, has any meaning, act for me is precisely a gesture which, as it were, makes palpable what otherwise is an invisible background. So, again, even there, in Badiou, you almost don't find uh, capitalism. Uh, So, again, the only serious question for me is, do we have to endorse this? And the other guy whom you mentioned, Simon Critchley, that's his entire point. You mm. cannot beat the system, Capit- the system is here to stay, the state is to stay, basically, everything is to stay. So all we can do is what? My approach to Critchley. if you read his book, Infinitely Demanding, I wrote a long review of it, which means one friend less, one enemy more. Oh. I will get, no, because my critique, you know what's this idea? Uh, capitalism, I mean, the state is here to stay, withdraw, resist. Don't try to imitate power, and so on. But uh, the first surprise I have with this, it's very fashionable <laughs> today, this poli- to, to withdraw into politics of resistance, like let's not get caught into the struggle for power. Let's just withdraw, resist, and so on. Is, uh, uh, well, uh Kritschlin, his book, Infly Demanding, literally has these formulas that the moment you also aim for power, want to take over power, you, start, you get caught into imitating power, you become like them, and so on, and so on. But here, I think, especially for Critchley, who is British, uh, uh, certain dose of best British naive empiricism and common sense would come handy. Like, what does he mean you don't resist? Surely he doesn't mean you don't resist Hitler, for example. Probably he wouldn't say, no, let's not resist Hitler with arms. It means you got caught into his game. No, there probably (laughs) he would agree. Or I would like to ask him a similar naive question. For example, you have here the unfortunate great president. What would he say to the left here? No, don't beat him, Democratic Hillary Clinton. Why don't you withdraw into the interstices of power and, and so on and so on. His formula is we should just make... The, those in pow- We should just put from outside the pressure onto those in power to make power more responsible and so on and so on. OK, an honest position. And I'm even ready to admit that mostly that's all almost one can do today. But isn't it then that if you function in this way, I have two problems. The first problem is how to avoid nonetheless playing the game of power in this way. I mean, I'm not a leftist paranoiac who claims every resistance is co-opted. Far from this. But let me tell you, when I asked him, when we had a debate, okay, give me one example of politics of resistance. He told me, for example, the big movement all around Europe, hundreds of thousands demonstrated against the Iraq war. I doubt it. I remember when in England, when I was there, there these big demonstrations, okay, hundreds of thousands of people, the greatest demonstrations in British mm-hmm. history after World War II. But what surprised me how, in a strange way, everyone was satisfied with the result. Those who organized the demonstrations were satisfied. Oh my God, you see, we showed uh, Blair and Bush, uh, the majority doesn't want the war. Most, the more strange thing is that those in power were also very satisfied. I mean, <laughs> Bush gave here a wonderful answer, which you may laugh that it's hypocritical. But I think there was a moment of truth in it. I remember I was in London when Bush was asked about hundreds of thousands of people protesting against you. His answer was, you see, this is why I love the demonstration. Because you see, this is why we are going to Iraq. So that the thing that (laughs) is happening here could happen also in Iraq, people freely demonstrating and so on. I think, even if it personally, from Bush's side was a rather stupid cynicism. There is a moment of truth in it. Everybody was satisfied because it was clear absolutely to everyone that these demonstrations will have no, no effects whatsoever. <laughs> I, I even suspect that, now this is something very nasty to say, that <laughs> most of the people who demonstrated did it, and they did not do it in spite of the fact that they knew that probably this will not have any influence on actual state politics, they did it because they knew it, that it will not have any influence. (laughs) They like this game, they are there, we are here, we make our moral stand, and so on, and so on, so at the end everybody is satisfied. In other words, when Simon Critchley has this formula, resist, bombard those in power with impossible demands, He's simply playing the superego game. I mean, the superego game, I mean, it's a very comfortable position of uh, uh, radical morality. We bombard those in power. But what then would you answer if, and I know politicians whose reaction to this position is wonderful to have people like Simon Critchley. Because they, we, who deal with real politics, we have to solve problems. But it's nice to have somebody to remind you that we all secretly dream of higher ideals and so on and so on you know every brutal politician likes to have another one who is kind of idea idealist who wants the impossible unfortunately we cannot have it it's a very comfortable it's a very comfortable position it's the same as with uh, democracy it took me some time to get the formula You know who was already aware of it? Didn't your great commentator, blah, blah, Walter Lippmann? He wrote a book already in the 20s. I forgot the title. where He proposed a wonderful formula, which is a very deep one. I think that it's not only this eternal Chomsky motive, manipulating consent, and so on. It's that uh, what if every functioning democracy is sustained silently by a kind of a secret unwritten pact. I claim people don't really want to decide. The majority of the people really knows, like, what do I really know about economics, about this, about this, and so on, and so on. They want, between the lines, to be told what they should choose, and then they just want to go through the appearance of choosing. I claim that, so I claim that this, the de the facto situation is more mysterious. Uh, in a functioning democracy, people would be... The truth of democracy for me is Switzerland today, where I was told whenever they have a referendum, you get... A friend of mine showed it to me. You get, when you go to vote, the paper to vote and an attached paper, an advice how to vote. <laughs> and everybody accepts it. That's democracy, I claim. <laughs> I claim that's democracy. It's That's how it de facto functions. And I'm not making fun of it. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not playing the old Marxist card, you see it's only a formal democracy, and so on and so on. I'm just saying that if you look really closely at it, this is how it effectively functions. We don't want to decide. We want to choose those who will decide make decisions for us and so on and so on so again do we have to endorse this naturalization of capitalist democracy or does today's global capitalism contain strong enough antagonisms which will prevent its indefinite reproduction and here i will try to address very naively today this big question that people ask me okay you claim to be a marxist and so on but cut the crap, what do you really mean by it? People often reproach me, okay, it's easy to write a book on Lenin, but wait a minute, what does this mean today here? And I will very naively, I hope you will not be too bored, try to approach this question. I see four antagonisms which I claim in the long term, capitalism will not be able to cope with. First, that's the title, the topic of main topic. I will come in the second part of the talk with ecology. I'm the first to admit the infinite adaptability of capitalism. I'm well aware that if there were to be a big ecological catastrophe. Capitalism would immediately turn it into a new domain of market investment, and so on and so on. I was even told that it's already happening, that there are already capitalists who take into account the possibility of, of, of this higher level of sea and uh, uh, global warming. And they are already selling beaches <laughs> in uh, Hudson oh. Bay in northern Canada and so on. I mean, <laughs> it's already happening even. But what's the problem? Capitalism, at a certain level, it works, more or less. More or less. Because, you know what surprised me? Uh, I don't, uh, the violent reaction to Naomi Klein's new book on shock capitalism. I mean, I don't think she is really a big theoretician, but let's be honest, she doesn't even pretend to be. But I agree with the fundamental message of her book, which is that. Market economy, it's not just a mechanism which you apply and it works. First, you need quite a lot of extra market violence to sustain conditions in which market economy works. And I think the big triumphant proof of this is today's China. Incidentally, if some of you have read about two months ago, I think New York Times was kind enough to publish that short text, crazy me about this uh, Chinese regulating, uh, regu- I love that topic, this turned me into pro-Chinese, regulating uh, uh, reincarnation. You know how you have to, and a friend from China, it's wonderful, I mean, how can, the, uh, literally you have a form printed if you want to reincarnate <laughs> Lama, and it says I here want like that. I can imagine with my dirty mind obscenities, how you know then a top bureaucrat uh answers you, sorry, you want to reincarnate as a, as a I don't know, as a, as a Buddhist Lama. Sorry, these places are, if you want to incarnate, it's under debate. Only some insects and dogs are free for reincarnation. <laughs> sorry, it doesn't go. And then, but you know that the game goes on. Now, something unbelievable happened. Did you read? Dalai Lama announced that he will not reincarnate, but that he wanted his successor to be elected by some kind of a more democratic procedure, like, okay, not really democratic, like Vatican conclave, to gather all the big Tibetan Buddhist figures to elect the successor. And now comes the irony. You know what was the Chinese official answer? You see, secularists betraying Tibetan traditions. No, we, we, now Chinese communists, stand as defending the true traditions of, of, of incarnation against this uh, secularized politician Dalai Lama and so on. But the basic lesson holds, I think, that's the difficult lesson to get from what uh, uh, we learn of today's China is that, and people are aware of it, in Europe, this debate is beginning. Till now, we secretly hoped that even if you were cynical about capitalism. But nonetheless, even many left liberals believe that nonetheless, sooner or later, after some periods of uh, authoritarian rule, capitalism brings democracy. It can be for a decade or two, you need a little bit of authoritarian rule to create conditions, but then it takes off. Like they like to point out how all the big success stories of capitalist explosion from Chile to South Korea were opened up through a limited authoritarian rule, which created the conditions. And it's typical, although some, even people close to Bush, already are honest enough to include into this series China. So it's absolutely hypocritical, I claim. Here I even agree with Chinese communists, although they are corrupt and so on, where they claim only That's the ultimate paradox. Only the authoritarian rule of the Communist Party can guarantee ideal conditions of capitalism. It's not that as some Western liberals think, oh, if capitalism can thrive so nicely today in China in spite of the party rule, how much more it would be? Triumphant with liberal democracy. Not more or less, I think. It would explode uh, with unrest, probably the unity of China falling apart, and so on and so on. But not to get lost, uh, I think that the sad lesson is that uh, the sad lesson of this is that we are, I think, approaching a new era in a way, even here in the United States, where it becomes more and more clear that. Capitalism and democracy do not go together naturally, how to put it? And I think we should reread history in this way. We tend to forget that this idea of natural coexistence of capitalism and democracy is not natural at all. If you look at the history of 19th century, you have first liberal capitalism, but definitely without democracy. Rather, as I read in some interesting new text in New Left Review, I forgot even the author, the author tries to prove how uh, what happens today in China is much closer to 18th century Europe, where wild capitalism was sustained by a very strong authoritarian rule. Now, uh, so let's not forget that throughout 19th century, things which today liberal boasts, but they are our inheritance no they were not at all perceived as part of liberal tradition what we today understand as universal vote universal education freedom of the press freedom of speech and so on sorry but this was the result of the long years of socialist progressive struggle that this was this was not originally part of part of liberal dogma we tend to forget this and i think we should remember this today because again I claim we are slowly returning, and that's the lesson of Naomi Klein's book, a sad one, that we are returning to a state where capitalism and democracy no longer, how should I put it, go naturally together. So again, but my point is more fundamental one, capitalism only works in precise social (coughs) conditions. It implies the trust into the objective mechanism of market's invisible hand, which in the guise of what Hegel called cunning of reason, guarantees that the competition of individual egotisms works for the common good. However, I claim, we are today in the midst of a radical change. We are in a situation where, unique in the history of humanity, where a subjective act, collective or even individual, like some crazy collective project like this big dam on the Yellow River that the Chinese are building on some super terrorist attack, whatever, we don't know what, can catastrophically disturb our lives and cause global catastrophe. So you see my point. My point is that market works where you have time for tests and trials. We have a problem. I try, you try, I fail, you (laughs) fail. Finally, we find the solution. You need a breathing space, as it were. I claim that when you have this extreme situation we are approaching today, where you have to make now a decision, and you cannot then repeat it and compete and so on and so on, you can no longer count on on, on market market mechanisms. You cannot say, "Okay, global warming is a problem. Let's leave this, that approach, market, and so on, and so on. At the end, we will find the most efficient mechanism, maybe. But we may be all dead before we find it. Uh, 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 The symbol of this is a nice detail which I read in a report on Cuban Missile Crisis. We learned that we were much closer to nuclear war than we thought. What happened on October 27, 1962, is interesting. There was a small skirmish between an American destroyer and a Soviet B-59 submarine off Cuba. The destroyer dropped depth charges near the submarine to try to force it to surface, not knowing that the submarine had a nuclear-tipped torpedo. So Vadim Orlov, a member of the submarine crew, told later that, the submarine was authorized in such conditions when directly attacked to fire this uh, nuclear torpedo if three officers agreed. And then the three of commanding officers began a uh, fierce, shouting debate. Two of them said yes. One, we even know his name, family name, Arkipov, said no. And you can almost say, as Some historians said at this conference in Havana later about uh, the Cuban crisis, a guy named Arkhipov saved the world. I mean, can you imagine what would have happened if this guy were to say yes? Russians would start with atomic attack and so on and so on. So you see my point. In such conditions, you cannot, I claim, play the market game. The second problem I see is the obvious inappropriateness of private property for the so-called intellectual labor. Uh, The key antagonism of the so-called new digital industries is how to maintain the form of private property within which only the logic of profit can be maintained. And I think legal complications in biogenetics point in the same directions. Phenomena are emerging which bring the notion of property to weird paradoxes. So again, I'm claiming that in the long term, this will cause crazy oscillations. It doesn't work. I recently spoke, I forgot his name, at some conference in Germany with a conservative economist, German, who says a guy like Bill Gates is an anomaly in the sense that when you have a guy who in 30 years becomes the richest guy in the world, it means that market no longer, even in a strongly distorted way, reflects some kind of social productivity. And so he said it's as if the normal market oscillation is the normal heartbeat, and it's as if today market is like a heavy heart attack, how should I put it? Market is reacting too, too irrationally with intellectual property. If you let market to itself, you would, we would be in a situation where, like imagine just United States government not intervening against Microsoft. You would literally have an individual or a couple of individuals privately owning our entire communicational infrastructure. And in this way market would even self-cancel itself. So again, I'm not saying this opens up any bright revolutionary prospect or what. I'm simply saying that this is a limit of market mechanisms. That there is something as it were in so-called intellectual property which makes it if i may use this term communist in its very principle the form of private property resists to it then third feature the socio ethical implications of new technoscientific developments biogenetics and so on and so on i think that something also is changing here the moment you introduce the notion of private property in biogenetics something extremely problematic is happening, which can lead to imprevisible consequences. And finally, what I repeat all the time in my texts, slums and other new forms of apartheid. New walls are arising. We are moving slowly towards a new apartheid society. And signs are everywhere, even in Europe, which, which, which praises itself as more civilized welfare state against vulgar United States and so on. But I totally agree with Immanuel Wallerstein when he predicts as one of the options, a kind of a a low level civil war in Europe between the new immigrants and the old European aborigines. We have in France, in United Kingdom, signs of it, so-called religious minorities organizing themselves and so on and so on. So uh, not to lose time, I think that this is the crucial geopolitical fact for me, how we usually characterize today's society, this is very fashionable, process, the society of total digitalized controls and so on control. We are all controlled. We know the story how every time you take a walk on New York, at least 20 cameras uh, 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 tape your movement so that basically, if those in power want, they can practically reconstruct the movement of already, more or less, of every one of us. But I think that there is the opposite movement also occurring. How the state, the more it is total in this sense of controlling population, the more it is simply withdrawing itself from parts of its own territory. White spots in the map of a state are emerging, slums places of the excluded, where the state simply withdraws. And I think the big question maybe of our 21st century is what will happen with this growing number of the excluded. Here I see, in spite of his clownish gestures and so on, the big significance of Hugo Chavez. Because whatever you think about him, and I'm far from simply supporting him, but let's be frank, he was the first, and till now, okay, in Bolivia the situation is more complex. We are not dealing with slums there, but with aborigines more. Wasn't he the only one, basically, who fully integrated those excluded in favelas into a political process? The way it was done in all other cases, in Brazil and so on, is either religion or charity, humanitarian, like, oh, every liberal likes to worry. You know, this is for me the liberal formula today. Are we aware how we live here, rich, totally secured, but you know all this, there are people there who need just $5 to make the operation that would save their lives and so on. Liberals like this. What they like to do is, this is the old formula, wonderful, that uh, Orson Welles used in uh, Citizen Kane. Every liberal likes to take care of, you know, this Angelina Jolie stuff and so on to take care of of the poor, because what they are afraid of is not that the poor will die, but that the poor will start taking care of themselves, of course. Now, that's (laughs) the true horror, no? Uh, So uh, again, I think that we are literally (coughs) heading towards a possible civil war with unpredictable consequences here. So how do these four antagonisms relate to each other? There is a big difference, a gap, which Separates the last antagonism, New Favela, Slam, excluded, included, from the three other antagonisms. The first three antagonisms designate the domains of what Hart and Negri, here I agree with them, not otherwise, call commons. Commons in the sense of the shared substance of our social being whose privatization, enclosure, and, and so on should be resisted. First, the commons of culture the so-called cognitive capital, everything, language, means of communication, but also shared infrastructure, electricity, and so on, and so on. We have commons here, things which should remain within the public control because it concerns us all. And here again, I partially at least support somebody like Chavez, because at least with natural resources, I think that that's how put it, that debt should be kept under, I wouldn't say state, but some kind of public control. Because I even read economical analysis, again, pro-capitalist economists, who are the first to concede that with especially small items for private consumption and so on, of course, capitalism works much better than public uh, ownership or whatever. But one can argue, does it really work better when you are dealing with these commons. For example, I think it was more or less accepted, even by economists, that when they had lacks of electricity, you remember a couple of years in California, they had electricity blackouts and so on. I loved it because I was there at that point and at the round table they asked me, you know, in this typical patronizing arrogant attitude, oh, you come from a communist country. Tell us, please, because we cannot imagine how it was to live in a communist terror and so on, no? <laughs> I told them, well, if I want to explain to my small son how it was, I bring him to California because, you know, we had electricity uh, uh, electricity blackouts. Now we don't have them. Now we, we must come to California not to see them, no? So again, we have the commons of culture. Then we have the commons of external nature, our environment, oil, forests, our natural habitat. And then we have what is the biogenetic inheritance of humanity is not the commons of internal nature. So I think clearly that three, three domains are emerging. Again, the commons of culture, the commons of external nature, the commons of eternal nature, where some kind of public, I wouldn't say ownership, but control should be established and it is this reference to commons which i think justifies the res- resuscitation of the notion of communism or to quote alain Badiou, he likes to play a soft guy here i want to embarrass him <laughs> would he do this here i'm quoting now from his last book on uh-huh. sarkozy uh, a nice quote to embarrass him <laughs> the communist hypothesis remains the good one, I do not see any other. If we have to abandon this communist hypothesis, then it is no longer worth doing anything at all in the field of collective action. Without the horizon of communism, without this idea, there is nothing in the historical and political becoming of any interest to a philosopher. Let everyone bother about his own affairs and let us drop, stop talking about it. In this case, the Redman, the usual scam, is right, as is, by the way, the case with some ex-communists who are either avid of their rents or who lost courage. However, to hold on to the idea of communism does not mean that we should retain its first form of presentation which was centered on property and state. In fact, what is imposed on us as a task, even as a philosophical obligation, is to help a new mode of existence of the communist hypothesis to deploy itself. I simply agree with it. That is to say, the first step to admit is that the solution is not to limit the market and private property by direct interventions of state and state ownership. That attempt failed miserably. I'm the first to admit. Uh, Why? I think we should learn here from Kant something, Immanuel Kant. We should, the lesson is that The domain of state itself is also in its own way private. Private in the precise Kantian sense of what Kant calls in his wonderful text on enlightenment, the private use of reason. You know that Kant distinguishes private and public use of reason. And you know what's what's the paradox here? No wonder that many radical leftists like Kant like really radical, who are even too radical for me. Like, do you know that Abimael Guzman, Presidente Gonzalo, Sendero Luminoso, you know that he was a fanatical Kantian. You know that the doctoral thesis of Guzman was Kant's theory of space and quantum physics. You start with this, you end up with, you know what. But uh, what is Kant? uh, What is attractive to a communist in Kant? I claim the key is his opposition between private and public use of reason. For Kant, again, it's the opposite of the usual liberal way to understand this opposition, which is the way Rorty does. Publicly, what's Rorty's point? It's a very simple one. It's that his liberal ideal is to guarantee a minimal public space of rules which allow each of us to complain about his pains or her, tell the story, and so on, and so on. Public, for him, remains the public order, law, state, legal order, which guarantees our private idiosyncrasies, prisons, and so on. For Kant, it's almost the opposite. For Kant, private use of reason means precisely state administrative ideological apparatuses, and so on and so on. It means the use of reason which is limited whose goal, horizon, is predetermined by a pre-existing social constitution. For example, for Kant, uh, theological faculty, uh, law faculty, and so on. This all is private use of reason. Because they are not free to question their presuppositions. They have to serve public order, state, and so on, and so on. This makes it private. But for Kant, if uh, we here, we would have been public use of reason. Why? Because, <clears throat> although we are private in the sense of not part of any public institution, we are, or at least act as if, pretend to be, public, public in the sense of unconstrained by any a priori predetermined space. We are free to debate. So that's the nice paradox of Kant, that if a couple of intellectuals mm. meet in their kitchen, in the kitchen of one of them, and debate philosophy, it's public use of reason. If you do do something for the state and so on, it's private. The next step, we should, this is incidentally the the difference. Here, Badiou's notion of subtraction comes handy. For the the public use of reason, we have to adopt the position of singular universality. We should withdraw from the particular social order and act directly as singular. singular universes. The thing to do here, to go a step further, is I think we should repeat this today. What already Marx did in his idea, the young Marx already of a privileged relationship between philosophy and working class proletariat. Of course, we should do it in a different way today, to determine again what counts as proletariat today. But the idea is the following one, that It's not enough, as Kant says, this public use of reason. I'm the first to admit in a Marxist way how many prejudices and so on uh, 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 can be masked as public use of reason. How do we guarantee that the public use of reason is really public? By linking it to a social group class, however you call it, which on account of its specific position, being those out of joint excluded, stand for universality. The idea is that the two, this is basic insight of Marx. The two universalities should collapse. The universality of reason and the universality of those who, because they do not fit the existing social order. You know, that's the old idea by Marx taken over by Ranciere, by Badiou and so on, that universality is not simply all encompassing universality. Universality doesn't mean I'm particular, you're particular, you're particular, but we try to abstract our differences and see what we have in common. No, that's private still use of reason. Universality means that one of us, precisely the one who is at the bottom, who does not have, as Ranciere put it, the part of no part, those without proper place, those directly stand for universality. And the catch is to bring the two together. That is to say, that's my thesis. All the first three antagonisms that I enumerated, ecology, biogenetic, uh, 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 and uh, ecology, biogenetic, and this uh, symbolic social substance, intellectual property, and so on. If we do not link them to this position of the excluded, they remain private. There is nothing more private than uh, State community which perceives the excluded as a threat and worries how to keep the excluded at a proper distance. You know, all these problems, how many immigrants can we afford? Uh, Will we still survive our community? Or or this, I think that uh, when people attack globalization, we should radically abandon, we play the capitalist game. If we approach the problem as, but will we all become like Americans eating, you know this, this, my favorite right wing motto. Which uh, turns around the old one: better dead than red. Yes. Better red. This is the European motto now: anti-American. Better red than eating hamburgers. <laughs> that's what it. No. So, <laughs> h- how will we keep our private, particular way of life, and so on and so on? No. Uh, that's my thesis. Uh, without this reference to the social split between included and excluded. All other antagonisms lose their subversive edge. Ecology turns into a problem of sustainable development. Intellectual property into a complex legal challenge. Biogenetic into an ethical issue, and so on. One can sincerely fight for ecology, defend a broader notion of intellectual property, oppose the copywriting of genes, and so on, while not questioning the antagonism between the included and the excluded. Even more. One can even formulate some of these struggles in the terms of the included, threatened by the polluting excluded. For example, you have ecologists who precisely combine ecology with anti- like all the foreigners coming, uh, causing pollution, and so on and so on. In this way, we get no true universality, only private concerns in the Kantian sense of the term. Corporations like Whole Foods and Starbucks continue to enjoy favor among some liberals, even though they engage in anti-union activities. The trick is that they sell products that contain the claim of being politically progressive acts by themselves. One buys coffee made with beans bought at above fair market value. One drives a hybrid vehicle. One buys from companies that, or so they claim, provide good benefits for their customers, and so on, and so on. Uh, I claim that, that's my conclusion here, without the antagonism between the included and the excluded, we may well find ourselves in a world in which Bill Gates will be the greatest humanitarian, fighting against poverty, and Rupert Murdoch, the greatest environmentalists, which he is. You know that Rupert Murdoch now had a Inner enlightenment discovered ecology is the threat and now you know all the the usual stuff ordered all in all his offices to use recycled paper and so on all, <laughs> all the all the things so again it's crucial what we have the fight for commons all these commons ecology our shared social the problem is how to keep these commons how to prevent these commons from being privatized we need the reference to the as it were, to the fourth level. So my problem here is, now I come to ecology, how to prevent this kind of, let's call it, privatization, privatization of ecology. Ecology, I claim, is today one of the predominant fields of ideological, not, uh, grain of seed. He says, I know it. But does the chicken know it that I am? <laughs> I think this, uh, this is how ideology functions. It's, uh, there is another aspect of this joke, which I forgot to mention when I previously was reading it. I mean, in ideology, ideo- the best definition of ideology is the chicken. That is to say, you know, but you act as if you don't know because the chicken doesn't know. And let me give you a naive example of this chicken. A whole country can go, can di- disappear so that the chicken doesn't know. This was my ex country, ex Yugoslavia. How? I read in recent memoirs of some politicians that in already in the early 70s, the nomenclatura, the circle around the ex president Tito, they knew the economic situation is catastrophic something will have to be done which will radically lower the living standard, blah, blah. But their problem was Tito was old and dying, and they wanted, okay, the chicken not to know, they wanted Tito to die happy. So for six, seven years, till 1980, when Tito finally died, the Yugoslavia got incredibly into debt, like some 20 billions of dollars and so on. They were, you know the, the famous phrase, in Hitchcock's Psycho at the beginning, that corrupt guy who tempts uh, Marion. He said, he, uh, uh, she told him, are you buying happiness? He said, no, no, I'm just, uh, bu- uh, I'm not buying happiness. I'm just buy, uh, buying off non-happiness, whatever. Something like this they were doing. They were, they were trying to buy off, to buy time, and they succeeded. But then when the crisis strike, it strike much stronger. So again, it was an incredible example of the chicken shouldn't know, how should I put it. But even at a deeper level, I think, this is how our culture functions. For example, imagine a civilized family. Mother and father are struggling, fighting, and so on. But uh, in a civilized marriage, they would say, OK, listen, we fight, but let's make a pact. Our children, our small child should not know it. And they pretend that they are still happy in the eyes of the child. Of course, the game goes on. The child usually does know it, but pretends not to know it, or not to make <laughs> his parents even more unhappy, and so on. But uh, this, su- this need for, uh, here we should supplement Lacan, subject supposed to know, the formula of transference. The fundamental figure of, of uh, ideology is subject supposed not to know. We need another who <laughs> remains naive who doesn't know. And this, I think, is our problem with ecology. We know it, but the chicken doesn't know it. (laughs) The problem is thus that we cannot rely on our common sense. That's my first crazy conclusion. We need to get in the only way to properly confront ecological catastrophe is to get even more denaturalized. In only in this way can we really accept the chance that what really is ecological threat, that, my God, our whole life world, the way we know it, can disappear. please, believe me. I will give a new twist to it. Old joke, you know <laughs> that. I repeated it here at least two times already. Donald Rumsfeld, you know, the known unknowns, all that. For, you know when Rumsfeld, the, when uh, Donald Rumsfeld in March 2003, Explained why the United States have to invade Iraq. He engaged in a little bit of philosophical debate. <laughs> here is the quote of Rumsfeld: "There are known knowns. There are things we know that we know." He meant like, oh, I, am, I am here and I know I am here and blah blah. Okay. Then there are unknown, there are known unknowns. There are things that we know we don't know. It's common what he meant. Like I know there are cars outside this building and I don't know how many cars are there, but I know what I don't know. (laughs) Then he says, but there are also unknown unknowns. There are things we don't know we don't know. (laughs) This was his justification. What if Saddam has some mega weapons that, it's not simply that we don't know, does he have weapons of mass destruction, but we even don't know what we don't know. It's a total, okay, okay. My old joke is that, uh, 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 Rumsfeld, you know the the problem of American politics is that they lack ideological reflection. Sorry, they lack uh, f- yeah uh, be, uh, uh, because uh, so, uh, because Rumsfeld forgot. You notice the fourth term, which is not uh, not known unknowns. You know what you don't know, but unknown knowns. You don't know what you know. <laughs> this is called in psychoanalysis unconscious. All the prejudices and so on that. Determine you without you even knowing it. This is why things went wrong in Iraq and so on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I think, and I think that our problem with uh, ecology is that what is the real obstacle towards our taking it seriously? It's a combination of Unknown knowns and unknown unknowns. On the one hand, there are things we don't even know that we know, These automatical prejudices which prevent us from taking ecological crisis seriously. And then there are unknown unknowns in the sense of some total surprises. We don't even know how nature works when you think you master A certain organism there can always be a surprise and so on and so on and this is the true epistemological problem maybe Uh, the Freudian if the Freudian name for the unknown knowns is unconscious the unconscious the Freudian name for the unknown unknowns is trauma the violent intrusion of something radically unexpected something the subject was absolutely not ready for Something the subject cannot integrate in any way. And here I want to refer briefly to a wonderful new book by Catherine Malabou, who wrote the best book on Hegel that I know in the last 20 years, published by Princeton University Press, I think, Levenire de Hegel, The Future of Hegel, with long beautiful introduction by Derrida, where Derrida, basically she converted Derrida. Derrida basically concedes there that he was wrong in his Mm-hmm. Dismissal of Hegel, it's a totally pro-Hegelian book, her book. Okay, His new, her new book, published literally a month ago, it's Le Nouveau Blessé, The New Wounded. Uh, the starting point of this book is, to the delicate echoing between internal and external real in psychoanalysis. For Freud and Lacan, external shocks, brutal unexpected encounters or intrusions due their properly traumatic impact to the way they touch a pre-existing traumatic psychic reality. The idea of Freud is that when you undergo a shock, even if the shock is radical, like a bomb explodes or what, the truly traumatic impact, it's not due to this shock as such, but to the way the shock arouses disturbs and so on some already trauma pre-existing trauma deep in you this is how Malabu rereads in a very interesting way that famous Freudian dream father can't you see the time burning where the external shock the burning of the cloth cov- uh, covering mm. uh, the, the covering uh, cov- uh, covering the dead child this is the external shock but this external shock fire arouses the internal trauma, and that's the true trauma. So even the most violent intrusions of the external real owe their traumatic effect to the resonance they find in perverse mechanism, death drive, unconscious guilt feeling, or whatever. That's the point for her of Freud. External real, real brutal trauma doesn't count, ultimately. It can simply destroy you, but doesn't count as trauma. It must have, it must found an echo in your, what Freud calls, psychic reality, the real of your inner traumas. Today, however, that's Malabu's thesis, our socio-political reality imposes multiple versions of external intrusions, traumas, which are just that, meaningless brutal interruptions that destroy the symbolic texture of subjects' identity. First, there is the brutal external physical violence, terror attacks like September 11th, the US shock and awe bombing of Iraq, street violence, rapes, and so on, but also natural catastrophes, earthquakes, tsunamis, and so on. Then there is the so-called irrational, in the sense of meaningless, destruction of the material base of our inner reality, brain tumors, Alzheimer's, organic lesions of our brain and so on, which can utterly change, destroy even even the victim's personality. And finally, there are the destructive effects of social symbolic violence, social exclusion, family violence, and so on. Basically, Malabu's reproach is that Freud succumbs here to the temptation of meaning. He is not ready to accept the direct destructive efficiency of external shots. They destroy the psyche of the victim without resonating in any inner traumatic truth. For example, it would be obviously obscene to link, say, the psychic devastation of a Muslim, you know, Muslim man, the living dead in the concentration camp, Uh, to his masochism death drive of guilt feeling. That is her big example. It's obscene to play there these Freudian games, you know, Muslim death drive. No, it's simply he is the victim. He is not devastated by his unconscious anxieties. He is directly brutalized by a meaningless external shock, which can in no way be hermeneutically appropriated. For Freud, if external violence gets too strong, we simply exit the psychic domain proper. For Freud, the choice is either the shock is reintegrated into a pre-existing libidinal frame, or the shock destroys psyche and nothing is left. This is how when Freud was engaged with violence, you know, in his texts during World War I, his point was always to show that even when you deal with the physical violence at its purest, like soldiers, who were who were brutally wounded by a by a, a gun grenade or whatever. That, in order to get from here to a psychological psychic traumatic effect, hmm. you must go through sexuality, through their sexual traumas, masochism, whatever. You, it's not the causality is not direct. So what Freud cannot envisage is that the victim, as it were survives its own death. All different forms of traumatic encounters, independent of their specific nature, social, natural, biological, symbolic, lead to the same result. A new subject is emerging today which survived its own death. Uh, sorry. Uh, uh, the erasure of its symbolic identity. There is no continuity between this new post-traumatic subject, for example, the victim of Alzheimer's disease or some other cerebral lesions of the brain. After the shock, literally, a new subject emerges. The features of this subject are well known from descriptions, lack of emotional engagement, profound indifference, detachment, and so on and so on. It is a subject who is no longer in the world, in the Heideggerian sense of engaged existence. This subject lives death as a form of life. His life is death drive embodied, a life deprived of erotic engagement. So in the tw- if the 20th century was the Freudian century, the century of libido, so that even the worst nightmares were read as sadomasochist vicissitudes of the libido, the 21st 20- century will be the century of post-traumatic disengaged subjects Whose first emblematic figure was that of the Muslim in concentration camps. The feature, again, which runs through all these figures is that the cause of the catastrophe remains libidinally meaningless, resisting any interpretation. Again, I hope I made it clear. Let's take Alzheimer's. You know that when somebody is victim of Alzheimer's, you cannot even say it's the same person, just somehow reduced. It's literally a new person. You are talking to a stranger. You can that's her thesis of Malabu that psychoanalysis remains at the level of repetition, every traumatic present serves as a trigger to 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 revitalize resuscitate all traumas and so on. But in cases like Alzheimer's and so on, Alzheimer's survivors of terrorist attacks, whatever, we are dealing with something different. We are dealing with a radically new subject. We have still a psyche, the subject sometimes can even talk survived, but his entire past is erased and he he or she is emotionally blank and so on. This for her is death drive embodied. And so that it's not only death drive as destruction, but you survive your death. And this kind of blank existence for her is something that Freud and for she thinks even Lacan was not able uh, sorry uh, uh, was not was not able to think uh, okay now i'm still working on this i think i will not go into it now how i think things are a little bit more complex here that for lacan a similar trauma where you as it were lose what she thinks happens as an accident afterwards, external encounter. I think that for Lacon it's constitutive of subject. As subject, we are, in a way, living dead, and so on. But that's another topic. What I do like in her work is this basic insight, which is a very commonsensical one, but I think there is a truth in it. Where, Again, where you are dealing with, victims of i don't know serial rape extreme torture or also things like a simple alzheimer's or whatever where the shock is so strong external that it literally destroys your personality but you survive what happens there you cannot deal with it the way freud was dealing with traumas playing these libidinal games and so on literally a post libidinal Subject survives and this is the mystery already of Musulmanen of this Agamben focuses on them incidentally in a strange way he uh, He claims that we find them only in Nazi concentration camps not in Gulag Which is a strange thing to claim because with all my sympathies for Stalinism (laughs) uh, I can uh, tell you it's not true they even had uh, many words for them. If you le- read Gulag literature, not sentimental shit like Solzhenitsyn, but really good one, like, uh, like for example, Varlam Shalamov, Kolyma Tales, and so on. They had the term. One of the terms was Duraki, which is the Russian for idiots, and so on. You had the living dead there. What? I, uh, and I. But I agree with her that this strange, weird subjectivity of a living dead. Where also we have. Very nicely, Malabu points out that we have here also a problem of uh, a problem of uh, transference. The way they are disengaged, you cannot play the game on transference there. Mm. The, you cannot get them into into transference. So the whole the clinic this would be the challenge. Is there a clinic of Muslims? How should I put it, no? <laughs> How do you? Oh, oh. How do you, uh, not Muslims, Muslims, but you know b- what is the wonderful irony of history? It's that these Muslims were mostly Jews, of course, no? They were called Muslims because, you know the story, in old, normal, Euro- racist Europe, the image of Muslims was those who were totally resigned to their fate and just do this automatic gesture, total mm-hmm. passivity. This was the ideological racist image of the Muslim. So when you are totally destroyed in the camp, you behaved in this way. You just uh, uh, made this gesture, the total passivity, which is why they were called called Muslims. So okay. Uh, Let me go to my main line and to conclude relatively fast. Uh, So the main lesson here is the Lacanian one, which, which, yeah, sorry. No, my first conclusion would have been that something like this, a total devastation, would already have happened, I claim, in a true ecological catastrophe. We shouldn't underestimate it. There were signs already in Chernobyl and so on that how a human being reacts when you are, as it were, deprived of your life world. <coughs> because let's not forget that. Lacombe points out this, out this very nicely in his early seminars. Nature is the ultimate big other. Not nature as nature, but nature as this fantasy of nature. Nature as the rhythm of seasons, stars. This is the basic reference of stability. The big other at its most elementary is when you say, oh, we humans can play with our follies, but... There will be winter and summer, the sun will rise, and so on. You know, in the sense of there is some basic big, big other, <laughs> bit not bit, big other, of a bit of uh, sleep in the sense of that Lynn Margulis, or what, who claims that, you know, the hypothesis of Gaia, the Earth, no, that the Earth is a or self-regulating organism. But Lynn Margulis, I hope I pronunci- pronounce it right, sorry, the, the big biologist. Uh, who developed this idea. She warned against mystifying Gaia as good mother earth. She said Gaia is a dirty bitch. I like this. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, so what I'm saying is that uh, so this would be a radic- truly radical ecology for me. Not just there is no big other in the sense of symbolic system where accounts are settled, but there is no nature to accept this utter ontological inconsistency of nature. And again, how to survive this loss of our substance. Uh, Now just if you allow me a very short conclusion, to add not a more optimistic note, but to go into ethical consequences here, namely, and aesthetic. Does this mean that I'm preaching some kind of nihilism in the sense of, oh, Everything is totally chaotic ultimately, and so on and so on. No, I think that, that what survives after the big other? I'm here for Badiou. Eternal ideas, the platonic domain survives, but not as substantial big other, as a pure appearance. What do I mean by this? I want to give you a little bit of a hope. Precisely, returning to concentration camps, there is a wonderful short story by Jorge Semprun, you know, who wrote, I think, what is maybe the best novel about uh, the last train, or what's the title, uh, 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 about uh, uh, concentration camps. Because frankly, what people like uh, I appreciate, uh, uh, Levy and so on, are doing. These are not exactly novels. These are fictionalized documentaries and so on, but. Jorge Semprun seriously approached the problem of how can you find an artistic form that wouldn't betray the traumatic experience like that of a concentration camp. So in his short story, The Cattle Truck, Semprun reports how he witnessed the arrival of a truckload of Polish Jews at Buchenwald camp. The Jews were stacked into the freight train almost 200 to a car, traveling for days without food and water in the coldest winter. On arrival, all in the carriage had frozen to death, except for 15 children, kept warm by the others in the center of the bundle of bodies. You know, they were simply for days in. Adults were ethical enough to say, we stay outside, and with our warmth, we enable the children to survive. So when the children were emptied from the car, the Nazis let their dogs loose on them. They killed all children except two small boys four or five years one a little bit bigger than other who started to run away in panic then this happened quote the little one of these two children began to fall behind the ss were hauling behind them and then the dogs began to hold too. the smell of blood was driving the dogs mad and then the bigger of the two children slowed his pace to take the hand of the smaller. Together they covered a few more yards till the blows of the clubs felt them, and together they dropped their faces to the ground, their hands clasped for all eternity." I claim this is not a metaphor, that this eternity is fully platonic here. In what sense? Imagine how you got the point, this miracle of the two surviving child running away when one fell down, the other one, even if total panic, stepped back, hold his hand, and then they died together. One can easily imagine how this scene should be filmed. While the soundtrack renders what goes on in reality, that's how I would film this scene, that the image would be frozen at the moment of clasped hands, but the soundtrack would go on, the children dying and so on. The sound renders temporary reality. The image renders the eternal real of the ethical idea. Uh, uh, I think we should read this scene the way I imagine it against the final shot of Thelma and Louis. You remember when the car. I think that there, unfortunately, you don't have a soundtrack, which is why it's missed. It's too, it's too vulgar. If I were to show, I think the more correct procedure, Ridley Scott I think was the director, would have been to have the image frozen but the the sounds of crash and so on and so on. This is, in this way you can render the platonic duality of the chaos of empirical reality and the eternal idea, which is not any kind of a deep substantial idea, Miracle of surface, what do I mean by this? Recall the old Catholic strategy, how to guard men against the temptation of the flesh. They tell you, this is the old Catholic, uh, I read it in some books even when I was young, Uh, a religious uncle gave it to me, that when you are tempted by a beautiful woman, the thing to do is to imagine how this woman will look in a couple of decades the dried skin, sagging breasts, and so on and so on. Or, this friend told me, even better, imagine how already now she looks inside. Like, you see a beautiful breast, but imagine all the blood, the stomach, the sheet, and so on and so on. What's my point here? It's that far from enacting, now that old-fashioned Lacanian pseudo-Lacanians, would have said, this is return to the real. The beautiful woman is image, imaginary, but you go to the real, which is the vulgar real of bodily. I claim exactly the opposite. The truly traumatic real is the surface, this abyss of pleasures that a naked body maybe promises and so on. And this idea of imagining all the dirt is precisely the very form of the escape from the real. The same thing, I think, happens in pornography. Uh, often people laugh at me that I repeat in my usual theory about pornography, this fact how pornography has this fear of over-identification, emotional, no? which is why in traditional pornography, when you see it all, the story is usually extremely stupid. The story which introduces it even, you know, like, I'm not kidding, the last one I saw is uh, years ago, is one where it was something like, no, 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 I will tell you what I saw more recently. I'm not, l- it's, uh, it's like, you know, a plumber comes home, fixes the hole, and then the wife says, but, but I have another hole to be fixed. Can you, f- uh, you are embarrassed. And I claim they are not so stupid. This is, there is a deep censorship here, as if to have both at the same time, that is to say the emotionally engaging story, and you see it all, it's somehow prohibited. Uh, but what goes on now, I claim, is an even stronger censorship. I was told, and all I know is then I checked on some of the we- free websites, and you can imagine the price I'm paying now, once you tested them. They note your... So every time I open email, I get guaranteed in two weeks, three inches longer, oh. and so on, you know, like... <laughs> that's life. That's life, no? Okay. So. Uh, it's so-called you know this so-called they call it uh, gonzo gonzo pornography which means what that not only is the story stupid but they consciously destroy even the minimal illusion that you are observing a narrative gonzo means that they openly they include the fact into their behavior that they are films. Like, they make love, but the woman makes a gesture. They address the camera. They make jokes about themselves, and so on. I think this is, you see, this is censorship. It's an incredible form of censorship. What they are afraid of is pure appearance. Precisely, what is dangerous is appearance. And again, for Lacan, real is not the deep real when you tear it off the ultimate truth. Mm-hmm. The real is appearance. And so this so in this sense in this sense I claim, earth uh, when Lacan says there is no big other in the sense of substantial reference and so on, it in no way, it doesn't mean a kind of Pseudo-Oriental wisdom, wisdom existential cynicism, you know, everything returns to dust, no 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 no. No no, eternity should be saved but as appearance of eternity. I'm sorry if I was too long, but that's life. What can you do? <laughs> Nothing. Thank you very much. It's okay with you, Jack. We have still some 10 minutes, whatever, of time to pretend that we are in democracy, no? <laughs> if you So, please, ah, are you? But help me, because I'm myopic, and then I may not see your hand, and then I'm usually accused of racism, sexism. I mean, these accusations are true. I am all that, but nonetheless, I... please. Yeah. There was a very interesting response
2: um, in the media. I remember one newspaper in Sweden was saying, "Well, the doomsday is almost here. You know, substantial emergency." Yeah. But then they had two answers. You know, this whole the first one was um, uh, we don't we don't have to sort of decrease our GDP very much, and I think you know your talk has sort of dealt with that, that issue very much. Mm. But the other thing was that we almost have the technique, we almost have the technology in order to cope. Yeah. And the point here that I'm trying to make yeah. is that you also, also have this kind of technology almost acting as this symbolic greed, as, as capitalism, in the same. same way. You know, you have the kind of backdrop, inevitable, inevitable backdrop. Mm. The same thing with technology, to some extent. You know, this kind of the Heideggerian, the stand and the shaq argument. Yeah. The technology becomes absolutely autonomous. And I'm thinking, I mean, first of all, why why you tend to sort of ignore that issue of
1: technology and how technology renders itself as inevitable as capitalism. And secondly, I yeah, yeah. think perhaps these may work together. In particular when yeah. seems that um, global warming seems to be the symptom both of capitalism and, and of technology. And see, you can only deal with um, with uh, global warming within the modality of EU capitalism or the yeah, okay. First, uh, I agree, I mean, first, uh, limits of technol- technology are no- sorry, or also even science, even more than techn- I said technology, are obvious. For example, this here we have unknown unknowns. Now, you're too young to remember how 20 years ago the big fashion more in Europe than here was what the Germans called Waldsterben, the dying of forests. Now we learned, let's be honest, that this was a total miscalculation that forests are thriving more than ever. There are more forests now on the earth than there were at any point in the last 150 years, I think. Mm -hmm. So this was simply, so no, this is for me not an argument to avoid it that, that uh, not an argument that ecological crisis is not to be taken seriously. On the contrary, that it has to be taken much more seriously because you know, we can miscalculate in this direction, in that direction, It's we are really dealing with to quote your respected philosopher again, Rumsfeld, with unknown unknowns. (laughs) Here, you know, know, but uh, you know what's for me the problem? When you say technology, I'm more tempted to say that already with Heidegger, there are problems here. Because sometimes, and then bad Heideggerians for you, like Richard Dreyfus, take this over. Sometimes Heidegger sounds like, as if for him, with the step The solution is to step out of this technological obsession to discover the pleasures of peaceful everyday existence. As Dreyfus put it somewhere, forget about this frantic activity, spend evenings free, sit at a table with your friends, drink, listen to music and so on. But that's not the Heideggerian way. Heidegger is well aware that all this says this when he's at his best. When he says that, for example, a lone farmer who Inspects his forest. He doesn't know it, but he is already part of the technological exploitation of forests, and so on and so on. So again, uh, I consciously avoided uh, the topic of technology because it would have been too it would have been too complex. But I think that the true challenge, and even with Heidegger, it's clear that the true challenge is to how should I put it? It's stupid to say reinvent, but a shift in the very meaning of technology. It's not that we should move from technology to I don't know what, more meditation or passivity or whatever. The battle has to be won. Technology itself, to put it in Heidegger, had to be inverted through a new disclosure of being or whatever. You no, know, You know, like, uh, I think, again, that what I would insist on is that there is no way out in the sense of rediscovering our life world or, or of whatever, Of step in this sense, stepping out of technology. If anything, I think we should become, in a way, more alienated. For me, the problem with technology is precisely, to, this will sound crazy, that in it we are not alienated enough. We appear to be alienated, but we are never really just abstract subjects exploiting nature. We always behave as if nonetheless we are part of our existing life world, and so on, and so on. So the the problem is much more serious here. And I think, again, that, that Heidegger himself was afraid to confront this. This, again, is not a cheap criticism of Heidegger. I'm again writing a long text on Heidegger. I think, especially today, when it's very fashionable again in Europe to attack Heidegger in a cheap way as t- uh, pro-Nazi or whatever. This should be rejected. I'm even tempted to say that the most interesting period of Heidegger is the period of the 30s, when he struggled with it, which is why in my new book, the In Defense of Lost Causes, which will be out in a month and so on, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the title of the Heidegger chapter is why Heidegger did the right step in 1933. Okay. Then there is a footnote, and then it says a right step, but in the wrong direction. You no, know? so oh. I, I, I'm not crazy. No, but but what I'm saying is that Heidegger, absolutely agree here with you, deserves to be re-read. But precisely, you know, I don't believe in this. I don't think that the late Heidegger of Gelassenheit is. Uh, is uh, I think. I think is the most productive one, to put it in these vulgar terms. I think that it's so interesting, this big struggle of Heidegger in between. In between, that is to say, after Sein und Sein being and time when he, it became clear to him that that project cannot be concluded in that form. And after that, but before he found his late formula, as it were, somewhere in 1938 with his Nietzsche book. Even his book on from Ereignis on a gnomon, is much more ambiguous. For example, Heidegger there still uses a term which would be unthinkable later. He speaks about the will to Ereignis. Willing is still a positive category there. And I'm sorry, but no, I talk too much, I'm sorry. But but
2: you you still didn't really speak about the relation to capitalism, the way in which you Mm technology as it has been conceptualized by, for example, Heidegger and all the- Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, I how, for example, do yeah. uh, you need a
1: technological society in order to have capitalism- function. Okay, I, sir, sorry, okay. I be, uh, okay, all I can do now is to give you just the formula. My formula is I think that Heidegger and those who see capitalism just as one of the forms of let's call it instrumental technological reason, or of course Heidegger would say that's not strong enough, what Heidegger calls Gestelle on, is that they underestimate capitalism. I think capitalism is a much stronger phenomenon in the sense that it has an ontological dignity. Capitalism is for me the root, as it were. I think capitalism has a transcendental value. The capitalist logic of surplus value, profit, and so on is something which It's really a world view, not in this naive sense of Weltanschauung, but a mode of the disclosure of the world. And what I would say is, here I wouldn't agree with the standard Heideggerian point that communism, capitalism, and so on, they are just different articulations of a more fundamental ontological project, however we call it, disclosure of being as gestel, as technological and framing, and so on. I would say no, that, capitalism has to be more elevated and that this functioning of technology is part of its, as it were, capitalist capitalist use or what. I mean, one shouldn't reduce capitalism just to an ontological, sorry, just to an ontic arrangement and so on. I think one should give, again, stronger weight, as it were, stronger weight, as it were, ontological weight to capitalism. But Okay, that would have been very briefly, very briefly, my answer.
2: I have a question, mm. but it's not socio-political. It's just—it's a, a question about a word you used, appearance. I wanted a clarification about how you were using it, being that it like factored into conclusions so much, you know. And you said that it wasn't like you can pull away the screen, and there was the thing behind. Yeah. It, mm. But that it was put, um, concluded on appearance. When you say appearances, are you talking about it, so let's say I have a sphere in my hand? Is it a sphere that's solid to the center of the appearance I have, that there is something behind it? Or is the your use of the word appearance like an empty sphere, where um, the idea of there being any kind of, you can use the word material, because I think <coughs> maybe as a materialist, but something extending from the appearance, or is that
1: not factoring at all? Ah, that's a very nice question, because yes, I agree. I should have. But again, this was just a final remark that I made. I, th- I thought, because as I already developed in, I forgot which of my books, one should be, I agree with you, very precise here. For example, appearance is definitely not a simulacrum. One should distinguish, of course, appearance in a simple imaginary sense. Things appear not the way they really are. Then we have, this would be simulacrum, like in digital reality, when you immerse in a digital world, it wants to imitate, to be like. But symbolic fiction is a totally different appearance. It's not an appearance to to deceive you, how should I put it. It's, so what interests me is, uh, of course, also, uh, then we have all the problem of appearance as phenomenon. We know from Kant that they are not at all the same. And this is the usual misunderstanding with Kant when he speaks about, about, uh, about uh, this uh, phenomenal world. This is not appearance in this sense that there is a hidden essence behind or whatsoever. No, what uh, uh, the fundamental move that I wanted to make at this level it's just it that, okay, it all began with my reading of Hegel. Everybody knows this big Hegelian phrase that every essence has to appear. It is usually read in a rather vulgar way that essence is not just an inner essence, essence had to disclose itself in the multitude of appearances. No, I think Hegel missed something much more radical that literally essence has to appear as essence within appearances, so that Essence is only here when you look at appearances and some crack in the appearances uh, signals that there is an essence behind. So that essence is only where appearances are inconsistent. uh, Mm. uh, That in this sense, essence must appear. For example, when you say, but there is a mystery behind. This means that the mystery must appear. Mm -hmm. You must experience it, that there is a mystery behind. If not, then it's simply totally other, which is why, to return to these problems of Catherine Malabou and so on. This is one problem I have with her. She focuses too much on this uh, horrible situation where, because of totally contingent reality, like your brain doesn't work, you, the, your personality changes, so you can see here how what you think is your autonomous personality is dependi- dependent on some stupid biological totally meaning stupid, not in the sense of simple, but in the sense of uh, uh, hermeneutically totally meaningless contingent natural processes. But something would have been for me much more terrifying. What if nothing changes and you don't even know it? What do I mean by this? For example, maybe I even used this story here years ago. They are making now some experiments, like they did it already with rats years ago, where they succeeded in connecting the neurons which direct your bodily movements, the direction you walk directly with the computer. And I saw this on TV. Maybe you remember it. It was shown all around some two, three years ago. This terrifying idea that you see a rat freely running around. Then you connect it, because these neurons are relatively simple. So they succeeded in connecting it, so that then you can literally play a living with a living rat as if a remote-controlled toy. It's something horrible that the rat runs around, but a living, but you can control it. Now, of course, what immediately interested me is, let's do it with humans, no? It can be done, because again, these, these neurons are not so complicated. It can be done. And now we come to the crucial problem, which is the truly terrifying for me. Not that you would be ruined, become another person. That, these are the good news. <laughs> The truly horrible things would have the crucial question is let's say I would be that kind of a rat, no unknown to me my those neurons which control my the direction of my movement are remote controlled okay let's say I walk around freely, then not even knowing when I am <coughs> controlled, and somebody I directs me. the crucial question for me is the following one: How would I experience this? would I experience it at all or? Would I still think that I am freely running around, not even being aware? And through some of my friends at Duke University or where I (coughs) tried to contact the people who were doing these experiments. And they told me that their hypothesis is a very terrible, terrifying one, that no, people would not be aware. Mm. This is for me much more horrible than you know, that Alzheimer. There you know you are in deep shit somehow. I I put, no? <laughs> but isn't it even more horrible when there is a radical change, but you don't even you don't even know it? No. Okay. So the problem is how to avoid here this paranoiac vision of uh, the paranoid vision of total control and so on. Uh, here appearance enters. You know this standard topic of books about. Uh, Uh, brains, let's say this user's illusion, and so on. We just think there is, but when you look behind, there is nothing behind, just stupid meat, brain, and so (laughs) on. But I think it's totally wrong to draw from this a conclusion that we are really nothing, that our appearance of freedom is just an illusion. It's not an illusion, it's an appearance. And the whole point is that appearance can have the efficiency of its own. That's my ontological wager. It's not that appearance is not something which just appears, but the process is, first to put it, uh, 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 totally determined at the level of what really goes on. No, appearance as such can have efficiency, efficiency in the real, which is why, ironically, those re- reductionist neurobiologists or cognitive scientists, brain scientists, who try to reduce consciousness. The more they succeed, the more they get caught into a mystery. Like, they demonstrate how, ooh, this free thinking of yours, it's nothing. It's only these neural, neural processes, blah, blah. But the problem is, the more you explain consciousness, the more the enigma emerges. Why then do we need consciousness? If you can explain consciousness as a blind process, why, then, doesn't it simply go on as a blind process? How should I put it? Why? Now, this is, this is a big debate in cognitive scientists. And OK, I am not totally bluffing the way I appear now. I read <laughs> quite a couple of books on it. And I think that those who are skeptical have a point here, that all the attempts, Dennett and so on, try to make them, of somehow accounting for evolutionary uh, gains that you get by consciousness. No, it's not clear. For example, as to complexity, it's not clear. Often in your unconscious mind, you can reason much more with much greater complexity and so on. That is to say this vulgar idea that by getting conscious, get that being conscious is a condition of performing more complex intellectual tasks and so on. Absolutely not true. If anything, it's (laughs) the other way around. I mean, the, the true mystery is that and Hegel knew it. Consciousness, I think, at its most elementary is not uh, complexity, it's simplifying. You know which is my favorite? Okay, as an old Stalinist, I say this brain scientist, the big influence on Oliver Sacks, the Russian guy, Alexander Luria, who wrote that wonderful book on the mind of a mnemonist, or how. The, The guy who had, in Russia in the 40s, an almost perfect memory. And how this ruined his life. The power of consciousness is not, is precisely to reduce. So this poor guy had to employ complicated techniques, not to remember, as we do, but to forget. I mean, mm. the fact of not being able to forget almost totally incapacitated his, the working of, 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 his, of, of his mind and so on. OK, I got confused. I didn't answer your question, I know, but that's life and so on. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> We can maybe have one more so that we play the triad, the tree, no, like <laughs> the Galian. no, please. Ah, okay, somebody has to sacrifice <laughs> himself or herself, yeah. It's sort of a, a comment and then a question. Um, in both of your responses to previous questions, eh? um, it seems as though you've been giving a niche gloss mm. ah, yeah. in some respects, um, ah, did, but with response to the yeah. first yeah. Um, the idea of uh, is like maybe when the keeper was trying to save you. You um, yeah, but I wouldn't you.
2: Sorry, please yeah, end I the question. We're, we're I the yeah, level. yeah.
1: Yeah, but why use this term, transvaluation? You know, I wouldn't I, I my feelings are, to put it in this very stupid <laughs> in these very stupid terms, are very mixed about Nietzsche. Although a colleague of mine, one of my inner party circle, Alenka Zupamczyk published that wonderful book, The Shortest Shadow or What. She is a pro-Nietzschean in my inner circle. But she did convert me, but not Quite how she put it. Mm. No, but where I like her work is, it, what's no, uh, if I rather connect Nietzsche to this final point about appearance mm. and so on, you know, where is the problem? She points very how Nietzsche, I think, didn't go to the end here. She quotes, I think, from *Genealogie der uh, Morale, of how, in the, in the space of a couple of pages, Nietzsche, you proposes two opposite and ontologist at some point he has this heroic notion of how much truth we can endure as if you know this heroic notion of truth is too strong for us human beings we prefer appearances and this would be what Badiou called the uh, the, the, the passion of the real you know truth is this raw flesh which hurts are we strong enough to confront the truth but then a couple of pages later he goes around and say the true greatness of man is to give priority of appearances to reality that, you know to then he practically turns it and the catch is that i don't think that nietzsche was able to formulate not in political sense the third way here how to read the two together and i think i will not do it now not to bore you too much that from lacanian standpoint <coughs> You, you can do it. Namely, the problem is, do we play, these are two sides of post-modernity. On the one hand, post-modernity is this celebration of appearances. There is no truth, one appearance, another appearance, there is appearance, beneath appearance. But then there is also this post-modernity of the negative thing. It can be Holocaust or whatever, you know. There is some horrible core of the truth. And we need symbolic fictions as a protection. And what I was opposing is precisely this misreading of Lacan along these lines. As if for Lacan, this is why I more and more hate Lacan's ethics seminar. I think it's caught into this model. Truth is something like Antigone does. You, you penetrate this impo- uh, uh, traumatic domain, you see some horrible prohibited thing, and oh my God, you have to run back, you know, and so on. That's not the Lacanian real, I think. The, it's much more, I, I would say the same thing that I said about appearance is that uh, uh, the greatness of Lacan is that on the one hand, he does not believe in substantial truth behind appearances. It's not that we have just symbolic fiction, there is some hard real too strong to confront. But on the other hand, if Lacan, there is something Lacan is not, it's that he is not this kind of a postmodernist, or oh, there is only the game of appearances, and so on. I would say that uh, this is what Alenka in her book calls this moment of shortest shadow. The cut, there is a truth, but it's a purely formal gap. The truth is the gap between appearances. The truth is the inconsistency of appearances themselves, as it were. It's a very nice ontological topic, I think. Sorry, again, I didn't answer, but what the hell? What are, what are you doing <laughs> there? Will be? No, you, you were drawing something there. Is this a portrait? No, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, sorry. I was just afraid. <laughs> uh. <laughs> because at some point, I was doing this at a conference, and then somebody at the conference of psychoanalysts in Ann Arbor, and somebody then grabbed my paper and said he will use it like how a complete psychotic works or yeah. <laughs> So okay, thanks very much. If you want, I will go on precisely into this maybe philosophically more interesting topic about appearance and so on when my next okay appearance here in, in I think it's the friday the, 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 the the 7th i think of december at as it were here? downtown maybe they will allow more 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 people more people in no where? Uh, NYU i don't know where in uh, but you know what you do something very simple i have to do because i often forget where i'm supposed to appear <laughs> but here google is a good thing internet you put <laughs> my stupid name december <laughs> new york and you get it. <laughs> Thanks very much. Okay, can right. you survive it? Look, very soon you will denounce me to Bedio now, no?
0: Now to
1: Bedio? Yes,
0: <laughs> turning around as if I was <laughs> responsible for. Oh <my> <laughs>